Hello, I'm Rashad Tabakuwala, author, business advisor, and supposed futurist. And welcome to the What Next podcast, smart conversations in a time of rapid change. This one is going to be particularly special because it's the first episode where we bring in someone from outside publicists. He has 300,000 followers on Twitter, his own Wikipedia page, a whole bunch of raving lunatic fans, and uh, his name is Dan Snow. Dan, welcome on What Next? Well, thank you very much for having me, Richard. That was a very kind introduction, and I'm honored to be the first outsider, so thank you. Well, if we were going to do something historic for ourselves, we might as well do it with a historian. Could you tell us all a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came about to being who you are, and then I will take it up from there. Well, thank you. As, as all historians will tell you, the, uh, the answers lie in the past. You know, the, the reason I'm here is where I am is because of the, the journey I've taken, the history um, of, uh, of what's happened. So I, um, I, I was studying history. I, I grew up in a family of broadcasters. My, and a family of history obsessives. So my auntie is a professor of history. My grandmother was a storyteller. She was, in, she was Welsh, and in, in in Wales we call grandmothers nine. And so my nine would sit there. She was actually she actually ended up in Canada, uh, but she she would sit there in the Canadian winter with us all gathered around her, and she'd tell stories about the past, about her childhood, about her her grandparents, her great grandparents. I'm I'm a bit like um, Moana, you know. I could tell you the. Uh, I could tell you the, the the stories of my ancestors going back in an unbroken chain, and and so, uh, so I grew up in this household that was was you know first of all there was the broadcasting my parents were both journalists, and then there was a full of history and every weekend we used to run around castles and battlefields and museums and I mean I I don't think I particularly enjoyed it but I got Stockholm syndrome and just got used to it and then that's all I that's all I ended up doing ever since and this is how generational trauma works I now inflict that on my on my poor children. Uh, and so I went and did history at Oxford University. And while I was there, I took part in the, the rowing race that we I did crew and, and Oxford and Cambridge both have, they have this famous rowing race every year. It's one of the oldest sporting events in the world. And I was on the BBC talking about history and talking about rowing and everything. And someone thought it'd be a great idea for me and my dad to do a show together about history. He said, no, initially he said, I'm a proper journalist. I'm doing a program with my son. Um, I thought it looked better than minimum wage data entry jobs in, in summer vacations, summer holidays. So we, I said, you know, we eventually I persuaded my dad. We did when we said yes, we did this one-off show, and then one thing led to another. And I've been very lucky to work for the for the twenty years since then, more more latterly, uh, digital. You know, BBC not not doing conventional broadcast, but having a whole new adventure, a whole new world of of digital um, uh, content, which is which has been, uh, well, it's been a learning journey, I'll tell you that much. Absolutely. Well, in fact, the reason we're having you on the show, so many of the 80,000 folks across publicists probably are asking, okay, they brought someone out from outside. That's good because we were sick and tired of listening to inside people, which actually isn't true because we've had some amazing inside people. But why the hell did they go bring themselves a historian or bring us a historian? And the reason really is in the fact that you yourself over the last two decades have transformed yourself from being a broadcaster to being sort of on the leading edge of digital 
including I just noticed that your most recent Apple podcast was about uh, speaking about whether COVID-19 was one of the largest intelligence failures in history. Uh, so we'd love to hear about your own personal transformation as you have moved from being a television broadcaster to being truly a multimedia maven. Let me start by asking you, what made you evolve? Well, you know, I, I think I knew from the first, I was 23 years old. I was in North Africa. It was the first project I ever worked on, the Battle of El Alamein, a Second World War battle in the deserts of Egypt. It was the 60th anniversary at that point. And I was there in the desert. And it was, I just realized immediately that there was something pretty old school about this industry that even then, even at that age, I thought, even at that you know, point of, of our technological development, I thought, this just feels old fashioned. I was there, we had 10 members of crew. We had, you know, Bedouin guides carrying in, in carrying all this gear and, and, uh, and we're driving these Land Rovers across these minefields in the Second World War minefields. And we had production crew we had two we had several camera operators we had sound engineer and and it was a huge amount of effort and and of course i also realized like it was it was like painting a nice picture but but so much of it was just going on the just just getting on the cutting room floor and immediately i saw that and this was before youtube existed and it was before but it was I, I was still at an age when we had been playing around with digital at, at university we some of us were had, had now digital portable devices like the first you know ipod if you remember the video ipod and and there were new forms of content being produced and i just thought to myself this is a this feels like a very inefficient process and it feels like a process which is pretty expensive as well and where there's lots and lots of highly paid managers execs and series producers all all having their input in what exactly what the script should be and tweaking things and I thought it felt a little bit unsustainable because I could, there was a sense in 2003 that there was a, a great seismic change coming and it was going to become cheaper to make content and, and also content that people liked to watch and, and absorb didn't have to be this kind of highly polished, highly refined guy standing on a, on a sand dune clipped English accent or word perfect. People kind of like the mistakes and the, the trip ups, like the way I'm, I'm talking to you now, well, I hope they do. And really that was the beginning of a journey, that first broadcast experience I had. And I went via working on some big budget shows for Discovery and BBC, where you're, I was riding a camel up the dry wadi of, at Petra. And I don't know, you know if everyone's seen Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, but you go into Petra by this beautiful little wadi where an ancient stream, ancient watercourse, it carved its way through the rocks. And then you arrive in this magical 2000 year old city carved into the cliffs. And I thought this is just great. And yet, but I was there with like an incredibly alcoholic director. And, and, and I could just see money getting wasted. And, I, and, and the experience is not a happy experience. And I thought to myself, I'm riding a camel through Petra at dawn, and I'm not happy. Dan, you've got a problem here. This is not good. You know, have you, is the end, like, what is, what, what, what do you need to change? And I think the answer was, I needed to just take, I need to have some agency. Being a presenter, being a broadcaster, being a host, as, as you might say, in North America, is kind of glamorous for a bit because you get sent around the world and a nice taxi pulls up and, get, and you get in the back of that, you go on a plane and you stay in a nice hotel. But you're given sheets of paper to just read out like a drone. And I thought, I think I just got to try and find a way. And also you're so, you're so vulnerable to the almighty commissioning editor. Uh, and this this person who sits in an office and has these you know capricious mood swings and things. I don't think I I don't think I need that guy anymore on this channel. Um, and so 
And so I just felt I needed to try and take advantage of everything that was going on, which was allowing people to reach out beyond the big gatekeepers, whether it's newspapers, book publishers, or TV broadcasters. I needed to try and make a connection with people and then serve those people with content. And as you say, the most recent, pod, I mean, I started a podcast and I've, I've tried I've, Listen, we have an English expression. I've thrown a lot of muck at a lot of walls and, and only some of it has stuck, but enough of it has stuck. I think that I've been able to build a, a little career out of it. And, and uh, the, the podcast is interesting. It gets well over 2 million uh, listens a month now. And that's just extremely exciting. I just get, I just get the world's best historians. We, I can interview them remotely or just turn up with a, you know, iPhone and a microphone attachment once the lockdown ends. Uh, and we just have these great chats. And you realize that there is a large group of people out there that were being underserved by traditional broadcasters. Uh, and, and they didn't, uh, they, they perhaps, you know, they, they weren't, it wasn't quite worth uh, making an expensive TV show aimed at the super history geek. But it turns out that there's a lot of super history geeks out there that will keep my podcast going. And now I've started a um, SVOD, a, um, a subscription video channel as well, which has got all the back episodes of the podcast. And then we make video, we make a lot of documentary on there as well. And that's got you know thousands, thousands of subscribers. So it's, it's, it's a really exciting time. And it's been hard work. I've had to transform myself into an entrepreneur, which I am absolutely terrible at. But it has also been the most rewarding thing I've done because now I get up in the morning, I want to make a show. I want to, I'm interested in the tight out. Well, you know, yesterday, you're right. It was, is COVID an intelligence failure? Our intelligence, our extremely expensive network of spies and information gathering all around the world did not adequately prepare uh, Western government, or rather perhaps Western governments didn't listen to them, but did not adequately prepare um, our societies, particularly US, UK, other ones, for this gigantic economic and, and, um, and healthcare shock that was coming uh, in the form of COVID. So I just, I chatted to that guy, but today I've just been looking at a Titanic film. I thought, you know, we haven't done the Titanic yet. So I got this great enthusiast. We drove this Edwardian car around the fields of Southern England, went to Southampton where the Titanic left from. And that was a show. And, and it means I can just respond. If I think my audience is going to like it, if I find it interesting, I can just get on and do it. So it has been a journey, but it has ended up in a, in a place of quite a lot of freedom and, and a wonderful connection with actual people out there. We've had a couple of podcasts where we've focused on how production has changed in the world of COVID-19. Increasingly, people are having to produce in new ways. One is they cannot obviously go on location. Second, many of them are tied in at home. Um, and so people are finding ways to produce almost 80 to 90% of the quality at 20 to 25% of the costs. Um, what do you think about that? And do you believe that post COVID-19, what you saw and what was happening is going to become, sort of the revolution is going to be on um, uh, television. It's gonna be everywhere. That came as no surprise to me. I, I was a, my, my business wouldn't work if I was still having to um, pay work in the ways that traditional broadcasters are still largely working in. The, the, the two technological changes that have occurred, parallel and related, one was the internet and the ability to, to um, disseminate uh, information, content to everyone around the world. And the second one was the, the, the collapse in the cost of high quality audio and, and, and video equipment. Uh, now, I, I went out on that first trip to Egypt in 2003. The excess baggage on that trip was 7,000 British pounds. We paid uh, the British Airways. I'll never forget because it blew my mind. It's a 23-year-old. We took jibs. We took 
uh, Dolly, you know, we took tracks, we took everything. Um, now, I, I've been for the last two years making little shows for my, my own channel. And, and typically, we go hand luggage only on flights. I mean, no question, right? We, we've got the you know, miniature kit. Um, and that now includes a drone. And, and the amazing and, and dark thing is, it, it's a more versatile and higher quality kit than we took to Egypt. You know, like we, you know, like we've sacrificed. This is, this is a camera that can shoot 4K. It's, it's more than one camera. That was on a digibeta. So if anyone out there can do the math of what a digibeta to HD and then HD to 4K is, I think it's something like 60 times the quality or the information. So, so the, the gear that we're taking out uh, is, is just a multiple uh, better. And then we're taking out a couple of cameras so we can shoot different angles of the same interview. We can work quicker. Uh, again, which didn't exist back in 2003, unless you had a you know really really sizable crew. We've also got a drone with us. Uh, we've got you know options around mics. You know we've got uh, mics that don't, don't have to be wired into a. You know you can just record locally on you know on you. You can, you can just go and stand away from the camera. You can do whatever you want. So the the, the revolution that uh, uh, both of those revolutions in distribution and in production have have been very clear to those of us that have been trying to make digital work for a while. It may now be that your big Netflix and your other companies uh, or your, you know, your advertising, of course, work out, you don't, you, you can, you can operate on that basis as well. So the answer, interestingly, I haven't noticed a huge amount of difference because my job is going to historical places, which are usually outside or eight year places where you're able to distance, talk to an expert, have a poke round. Uh, we've had to make sure the camera operator is a little bit further away than usual. But I, I've, you know, I, I, the show I made on the Titanic the other day, for example, it, it, if you watched it, you wouldn't know that it was created under under distancing conditions. That is an advantage of documentary. I think it's the advantage of factual. But uh, I can honestly say virtually nothing has changed in the same way that I'm now talking to you remotely for this podcast. I like to be in the same room as the, my podcast guests, if possible. Uh, but it's not the end of the world if we're not. And the, in fact, the podcast numbers have ticked up recently. So clearly the audience isn't, isn't scared off by the slight difference in sound quality or, the, or slightly less good chemistry between me and the guests. What's exciting is the... The, the transition, as, as you've said, I mean, I was thinking the other day about Winston Churchill's famous speeches from 1940, 80 years ago this summer. Winston Churchill made those absolutely infamous, or famous, and wonderful speeches uh, in the House of Parliament about uh, we'll fight them on the beaches and all that kind of stuff. Now that was in a in a media environment. There was only one channel effectively that the Brits could listen to, so that got enormous penetration. Most most people in the UK would have heard a version of that speech, heard those words, heard, heard that reported on the BBC. And that's why we also get this very uh, remarkable, during the Second World War, for example, we get these famous, these famous songs like Glenn Miller Bands or whatever it was, where the, if, if you got on that BBC playlist, you got, you got broadcast everywhere in the country and, and no one else got a look in. And, and that situation has just simply been inverted. There is now a world in which... We are all scrabbling. Everyone's a broadcaster. There's, not, there's nothing new here. But yeah, on via YouTube or podcasts or simply on your Facebook and Twitter accounts, everyone has is able to wield the, you know, potentially reach the same audiences that would only a generation ago would have been the provenance of just a few media companies around the world. I mean, I'll never forget when Twitter, Twitter just about beat Facebook and YouTube, I think, to live streaming. Uh, and so they unleashed Periscope uh, quite early on. And Periscope, I, I remember I was in Gallipoli at the time. I was covering, for the BBC actually, I was covering the 100th anniversary of the Gallipoli landings in Turkey, particularly famous in Australia and New Zealand. The troops stormed ashore at Anzac Cove and, 
had faced t- overwhelming odds and terrible landscape and terrain. And it was the start of a vicious and terrible campaign for them in particular. And I was there reporting it. And, and as a result of one up, you know, one download on my phone, download a new app, and suddenly I was doing live streaming. And people around the world, turns out, strangely, Turkey has got an excellent 4G network. And I was on the beaches of Gallipoli, and I was, li- I was, I was doing an OB. I was doing an outside broadcast. And, and a week before, that would have cost hundreds of thousands of pounds, dollars, if, if not more. It would have required a satellite truck and a team of people. And here I was holding up my phone, broadcasting the world, and taking questions from people around the world, people in Australia, people in North America. And I mean, that is, we, you know, we're so used to this now, but that is revolutionary. That is an extraordinary transition. I'll never forget where I was when it happened. And I think you look at the YouTubers, you look at Joe Rogan, you look at people that have been able to take advantage of that opportunity in, some, in, in the entertainment space. But, you know, you could argue Donald Trump's taken advantage of that opportunity in the political space as well. Uh, and it is it is brought about a complete revolution in how we interact in the voices that we listen to in what authority means uh, and in our choice you know, we we can now choose i mean it blows my mind it blows my mind to be honest when anyone subscribes to my history hit channel or subscribes to my podcast i'm like how did you find me on the internet i mean what an honor imagine the internet is basically the sum total of everyone's creative output on planet earth and somehow this person in Malaysia has found their way to me and through the paywall and is now a subscriber to me. I mean, that is, that is a, a awesome. Um, and I've, so I, I, I'm like hugely grateful for every single person that makes that journey, but it is fascinating how, you know, how, how much there is. And when you explore, of course, you just discover more and more. Three key things from what you've just said that we ourselves are doing, which is number one, you and I are, you know, Atlantic Ocean separates us. You are in the United Kingdom. I am in Chicago. And uh, I am using kit that was sent to me by Chris Harrison and the team because they thought that what I was currently using was useless. So they sent me some good British stuff. Uh, but uh, so in many ways, we are utilizing and producing a show which... Uh, we could not have done a decade ago. Uh, That's number one. And number two is we have, to a certain extent, a captive audience in addition to somewhat captive clients, which is our 80,000 folks are at home and are trying to find ways to grow, learn, and connect. And this is one of those ways. But as importantly, what we have found, and at least I have found, it's very easy to get access to very senior clients because uh, there are no more assistants and gatekeepers and ways to avoid us. You can run, but there is nowhere to hide anymore, I guess. <laughs> That's right. So it, it's, been, it's been great. And actually, some of the time, it's a nice, it's a nice thing for people to do. So if, if talking about history uh, is, on the whole, not something that I have to – I don't have to put people in a headlock particularly. And so I've I've found it's been very very easy to get really super interesting guests, and they and they want to come on, and also the technology is so simple for them now. And you know, in the old days, they would have had to commute. They would have had to commute to a different city and fly somewhere. Um, I think our I think our insist. I think it's good to be face to face, but only when we have to be. And I think we're gonna I think we're gonna change the way that we work and travel after that. I could I my suspect that will be one of the enduring legacies of this lockdown. 
Yes, uh, you know, I, I believe so. In fact, uh, some research that we've done indicates that habits are formed or broken when someone stops or starts doing something for 60 days, which is what many of us have. And we've sort of recognized like myself and many of the folks who are listening to this travel a lot for business. I'm sure we'll continue to travel, but probably less because we recognize that a lot of what we were traveling for can be done uh, you know, using Zoom or Skype or Teams or things like that. So let me now basically take sort of the curmudgeon position, which is uh, the only reason, Dan, that anybody comes and listens to your show is because you had the BBC. You were already famous, but people like myself or other folks who want to launch something, nobody will listen to them in a world of million channels. So can you tell me about the fact that you built your fame in the offline world and then took it to the online world, or can you build your fame in the online world? Well, I think that's a, that's a great question, and I, I would reiterate, I feel I have been very privileged in that respect. I would, I, I would note, however, that if you look at the rest of the, the podcast charts, for example, or certainly YouTube, it is full of people who have successfully fought that insurgency from the ground up and, and, and hold themselves up the hard way, which is just, just you know, a digital ground game that is incredibly impressive. I, I would also say it is amazing to me the, the different audiences that you, you talk to. So if, we, if you look at the A, we've done a bit of research, the age of a classically a BBC Two audience is some average age is now in the early sixties. Um, the age of my podcast audience is in the somewhere in the thirties, average age, somewhere in the thirties. So they are they are different people, um, and and furthermore, uh, I, I do you do I, I get people now getting in touch with me on on social or Twitter, for example, going, oh, I, I did you did some well, I, I, was that you on that TV show last night? They think I'm actually a podcaster, so. I think it. I think it gave me a little bit of jet fuel at the beginning. I was very lucky, and then that got my head up over out of the crowd, and then I got good chart position on iTunes. And, and just so, if anyone is interested in designing podcasts, so we do. Uh, the, the tip from us is we feel chart position is pretty important. So gaming your chart position by doing a big drop, releasing five podcasts on the same day, uh, what you know, whatever it might be, is it, um, making sure people are, are clicking through to listen on iTunes. We feel is 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 pretty important. Um, it is possible. It's obviously harder. I was very lucky, in, in, again, in that respect. It is, though, possible. Uh, and and there are a huge number of podcasts in particular and YouTube channels started by people who haven't had that leg up. It just might take a little bit longer. And that's why the key one key bit of advice is a lot of people have got a great idea for a podcast, which is 10, maybe even 20 episodes, maybe 50 episodes. But unless you've got a plan for 500 episodes, then I would be I would think very carefully about it. And I would also think very carefully, unless you really enjoy that content, unless you love it. I mean, the, the point of doing this is probably not to get Joe Rogan rich. I, I think it, it can support a lifestyle. It can pay a living, a living wage effectively this, through digital broadcasting. But you need to go into it pretty, pretty eyes open that it may not, it may not do that and certainly not for some time. But if, if it's something you love, if it's a hobby, and it, which in my case it was, you know, I, I, talking to historians about the past uh, is is something that I would do anyway, even if I wasn't boring the rest of the world with it. And then going to historic locations and kind of doing reportage from those places, that that's what I would be doing anyway. It's what I love. So I think if you're if you're you got you got to you got to fight a long game, and then the monetization will come if the passion's there and if you've got the volume and if you've got the the energy and the stamina to keep going. 
And then, of course, there's you know there are ways to digitally market. There are ways to, to spread to guest on other people's podcasts. Um, I, I read one podcast in the US who, who made it himself. He he emailed everyone he'd ever met, every single person he'd ever met. He reconnected with them. He said, "Look, this is kind of strange, but I'm doing this big podcast drop," and that and that got in those first hundred, first thousand listens, and, and that gets you somewhere. Talking about multi-platform monetization, can you share a little bit about how you're going around it, whether you know advertising is part of it or is it just subscription? And you know what are the different ways uh, and different, you know, because you obviously have the podcast, you have your SVOD. Uh, just a little bit since you have now become a multimedia company of one. Uh, well, I mean, we, I mean, I should say, of course, it's not quite a one. There's some very talented people I work with, probably why I'm, why I'm talking to you today. Um, we, uh, we, we, advertising on, on the podcast is, 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 has worked out really well. There's a bit of a headwind on that at the moment, as you can imagine. And spend seems to have come down in, in that space in, in, with our economic woes at the moment. Um, then, then there is sort of actually branded episodes. There's a slight difference between just straight advertising and then branded episodes. We're very lucky. History is very versatile. So when Microsoft came to us, they said, look, we want to talk about how our, you know, we are supporting the work of organizations that are looking after maritime heritage. So the big, one of the big problems we have in the world at the moment of, uh, of wonder water archaeology is that people are breaking up these old shipwrecks for scrap. They're pulling this metal up. They're destroying it. They're, you know, souvenir hunters. They're, they're destroying these sites of historical and, you know, emotional importance. Some of them are war graves, for example. And now with this Microsoft-based technology, you, we're able to keep an eye on these sites and track known boats that are involved in illegal salvage and illegal looting of these sites. So, so that was an episode where we we're talking to all these underwater archaeology specialists, but Microsoft supported that. And that was, you know, that that worked out, I hope, really well for everybody. And without, you know, com compromising the integrity of the, the podcast, I, I think it's great that Microsoft would, you know, prepare to do that. And we didn't have to say nice things about Microsoft. We just pointed out that technology was being used in this particular area, and they put us in touch with all these experts. Uh, same by the same token, you know, tourist boards uh, were <laughs> a key client because they can say, look, there's a lot of history here in. Well, the most recent one I did was St. Helena, which is a little scrap of and one of the most remote places on earth, a little island in the South Atlantic where Napoleon Bonaparte was taken prisoner after the Battle of Waterloo. He was taken down there and kept on this volcanic outcrop. And I flew down there uh, just before the lockdown to make a history show about the place. And it's extraordinary history. And that will be a couple of podcasts. It'll, they can use that in their marketing material. And then I'm, I get, um, I've got a longer documentary. It'll go on my history hit uh, TV channel. So, so it's working with clients. So this kind of branded content has been, has been really great for us. Uh, and, and as I say, but, but luckily in, it goes with the grain of, of the creative of the podcast. So you're not, you're not kind of the audience like, what the heck is Dan doing talking about washing up liquid? You know, you, there's enough, there are enough brands working, there are enough brands working in the history space to, to make those good partnerships. And then lastly, there is subscription, which which has been you know pretty hard, but it's been it's been well worth it, and it's been exciting. Which is having back episodes of the podcast on a on a on a, a, t, a basically a TV channel, an audio and TV channel, which we've built called History Hit TV, and we've got licensed documentaries on there, so great history documentaries from around the world, you know, that you may have seen on TV over the past few years, and then we've got new content as well. So that's kind of like Netflix for history, basically. Uh, and that has and that has recurring subscription and annual subscribers, 
uh, and they also now can come on those subscribers can do things like come on a zoom you know live zoom podcast record so for example, I just realized I was doing these Zoom podcast records and why why not invite more people on them? So now those subscribers can access that as well, ask questions. So that that is that's going kind of great guns as well. So those are the three and then there's live. Then of course there's live. So there's the live events. Last year we did a tour around the UK uh, and people came to watch and listen as we recorded the podcast live and and did events around that. So those are the kind of areas that that has and we've been able to monetize. And the nice thing is it feels like it's quite a a broad base because so for example when the advertising money fell off a little bit in the last couple of months luckily the subscription held up and other things held up as well so so yeah it's uh, that's that's how we've been doing it you mentioned that your audience age is different with obviously what's on bbc television versus twitter and your podcast and that is something that is important for us to keep always in mind because um, though over the years I've now become sort of a old fogey having worked for 40 years in the business, um, it is very important for ourselves to recognize, especially among our leadership, is that the media we grew up with and that we are most comfortable with may not necessarily be the only medias that exist. And there may be a lot of media where younger people spend a lot more time or different people spend a lot more time that we're not aware of. And so being educated about these new media, you know, whether it's you know, the TikToks and the podcasts of the world is as important uh, as, as ever before. And one of the thoughts always is that if you are not experimenting at least now, you've gone all the way to experimenting with creating, but if you're not experimenting with interacting and listening to or viewing uh, some of these new formats, uh, many of us could basically be uh, out of date. So uh, watching how you have evolved over the last 20 years should be inspiring to all of us uh, because all we have to do is follow you across platforms and we learn a bunch of stuff. What has held true, Dan, is that you've held on to your DNA of being a historian. So while you've worked across these platforms, you haven't gone from being a historian in one to being a geography expert in the second and a scientific expert in the third, unless it's linked to history. Is that right? That, that is such an interesting point. So, you know, I'm on TikTok, I was thinking, maybe, you know what, maybe I should uh, put my little fitness videos up on TikTok. And I said, you know what, don't do that, Dan. That would be a terrible idea, first of all, because you're not super fit. And secondly, because I think it is, I think it's a big mistake. I feel very lucky to have worked out what I'm, what I'm good at and, and have a really clear proposition. And I think that I think I've seen a lot of my friends who are content creators in, in lots of different ways, when they try and sort of um, morph into something else. I think there's huge dangers there. I think you have a big danger of alienating an existing audience while just, you know, undergoing the huge studying at the bottom of the mountain of, of attracting an entirely new audience. You know, uh, to, to you as a perhaps you were a perhaps you were a kind of uh, you know hair hair and beauty person. Now you're trying to become a you know maybe health and fitness yoga whatever. I've seen that journey a little bit, and I think it's pretty difficult to do. It can be done. So I have, I've, and I, you know, I, I'm, I suck at everything else. I, I know a bit about history. I've built up some expertise. I've built up great contacts. I mean, that's something else to talk about. You know, I've, I've mercilessly and, uh, you know, 
uh, exploited all these wonderful people I've met, these people come back on the podcast, you form a relationship with the audience, forms a relationship with these contributors. Um, I, I know them well, I know them personally, I make sure I buy them lots of drinks when I when I see them in the flesh. So uh, that is a, you know, I've got a kind of reservoir that I've built up. As you work across all these different platforms, how are you leveraging or utilizing data if you are to understand both how you are doing and what your audience might want or resonate with? Well, I don't need to tell you that the, the data is data is invaluable. Um, we are in baby steps. We do A/B testing in terms of marketing for uh, for the for, for ads for the subscription channel, and we see pretty you know huge huge differences. Um, we, we we obviously time of day posts is a is a big thing. Uh, testing out video content versus still images, etc. Um, we are we we do a lot of we try and do data around which historical periods and things and objects and people uh, bring 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 folk in, and then we see different results coming from different countries in that. So we're basically in the process of accumulating. Like this is a story you're going to hear from everyone in the world. We've got far more data than we can use, and we we're desperately trying to now work out ways of using that data to do things like one of the, of course, critical for us is reducing churn. So people that subscribe and then get to the end of that journey and think they're going to unsubscribe, we, we, we're looking at ways to identify their behaviors when, you know, the amount of times they log on to that, the channel, for example, it starts to drop off. So we might send them a piece of content, especially designed. We know they, you know, we know they like watching World War II content. So we might send them a little message or with some World War II content or a recent podcast on that subject to try and re-engage with them. So data, it will come as no surprise, is absolutely critical, but just as critical, in fact, far more critical, far more importantly, is, is ways for com- sort of small companies like mine to wrestle it, to wrangle it, and to get it into a condition where we can actually act on it. Uh, but when, we've, when we have, when we've tried and when we've succeeded, it can be it can be game changing. I'm going to end with asking you a little bit about both past history and to try to project into the future with what you know. Um, you know, you had mentioned that once upon a time there was really only really one channel, and it's one of the reasons why Winston Churchill's famous speeches got, uh, you know, so. Now we have a lot of, lot of channels, a lot of plumbing, uh, zillions of channels all over the place. And many of them uh, now let us select what we want. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. One is a little bit about how this fragmentation of media has led to a, what it seems to be a polarized world. Uh, so in the U.S., when I watch CNN and then I watch Fox and I try to watch both, I sometimes wonder whether I'm living on the same planet. Uh, so a little bit about polarization, how that has moved on, and then a little bit about where you think the future of technology is going to take, uh, you know, communication. Well, I mean, you, of course, you're absolutely right. Um, and it is, uh, once everybody has a voice, you're going to get as many different opinions and as many different points of view as there are human beings on this planet. And therefore, we're not going to know who to listen to and what to believe. I mean, I think the historically, of course, that was 
and perhaps more normal than we thought. So if you look at the 19th century newspaper market, it was very similar to that. There were newspapers, every town had newspapers, different points of views, fake news, people in the New York, people, one famous paper in New York announced on the front page that they discovered life on the moon, uh, one of the great fake news stories of all time. Uh, and actually, so, so what we might be returning to is is the norm. Uh, it's, it's crazy to think, but perhaps it was the 1930 to 1990 was actually the historic abnormality when Walter Cronkite could go on the evening news and was watched by 65 million Americans and say that the war in Vietnam was unwinnable. You know, that is actually historically the most unusual thing. Um, and the fact that we are bitterly divided by partisanship, you know, Britain in the 16th, Britain in the 17th century, when King Charles had his head chopped off, his son James II was thrown off the, the thrown off the throne. Uh, you know, uh, he was uh, forced out, forced into exile. You know, the, the, the partisanship there was unbelievable. No one knew what to believe. There were newspapers, pamphlets, fake news, anonymous things left around on street corners. So I think whilst there are big challenges about today and we need, I think, to establish a place we can come together and accept, have a shared, uh, shared understanding of certain important facts, um, it, it, we shouldn't be super surprised that it's no longer possible for even a politician to just go on, go on the evening news and say, well, this is how it is, everybody, because that's not how it was. And, and it, we, we have just, we have left behind a very unusual part of history thanks to the broadcasting technology that existed at that time. Fantastic. Well, Dan, it's been incredible speaking with you. And in this you know, brief uh, conversation, you have um, illuminated us both on how you transformed yourself from being a single media to a multimedia, multi-platform, multi-optimization and monetization uh, company, that a lot of what we were seeing going into COVID-19 is likely to be accelerated. And a lot of the lighter, faster production that we are seeing is now going to be a part of the world. On the other hand, you've also reminded us that being true to a brand, recognizing what customers and consumers need, and being able to tell a story uh, has been uh, something that has outlived and will always outlive maybe history. But thank you again, Dan. What Next, a publicist group podcast produced by Prodigious UK.